Hello and welcome to Misty 101 podcast. UK data destroys entire premise for vaccine push. The media can read just as well as me, maybe, but somehow it is left to me to report this. The UK government just reported the following data, tucked away in their report on variants of concern, less than a third of Delta variant deaths are in the unvaccinated. Let me say that another way, two-thirds of Delta deaths in the UK are in the jabbed. To be specific, from 1 February to 2 August, the UK recorded 742 Delta deaths. Yes, the dreaded Delta has not taken that much life. Out of the 742 deaths, 402 were fully vaccinated. 79 had received one shot. Only 253 were unvaccinated. Again, 402 deaths out of 47,008 cases in vaccinated, 253 deaths out of 151,054 cases in unvaccinated. If you get COVID having been vaccinated, according to this data, you are much more likely to die than if you were not vaccinated. Obviously some allowance must be made for more elderly people being vaccinated, but not enough to change the bottom line, this vaccine is not nearly as effective as advertised. And with all its unknowns, and a much higher adverse reporting number than all other vaccines combined, a complete recalibration of global policy is the only moral option. Countries around the world, as months pass since vaccinations, are experiencing a surge in vaccinated deaths and hospitalizations. 60% of hospitalizations in Israel are fully vaccinated patients. Hence the mad rush for untested boosters. The powers that be will not admit there is something terribly wrong. They will not acknowledge the clear science that people with natural immunity, and the young and healthy, do not need to take the risks of these injections. Read this very important piece on natural immunity. Reliable studies showing the superiority of natural immunity are just ignored by our overlords. Instead they will jab and jab and jab again. The vaccine passports will be renewable every six months. Countries are ordering up to eight shots per citizen. The masks will not go away. Israel, the preeminent vaxxed nation, is in lockdown. This is not a sterilizing vaccine that stops diseases like polio or hepatitis using live virus. This is for you alone. Which means, as experts like Martin Kulldorff, biostatistician, epidemiologist and professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and Jay Bhattacharya, professor of medicine at Stanford University and research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, have long said, it makes zero sense to vaccinate the young and healthy. We are dealing with a world historical error, and in fact a global assault on young bodies. To be clear, I make no advice to anybody about taking the vaccine or not. I may well have decided to take it if I were in a risk category, or if I knew I did not have to wear a mask or get tested after taking a single shot. Your decision should be guided by consulting with a doctor, informed consent, and your own conscience. 
and you should ask yourself why there is no explanation for the hundreds of thousands of women experiencing menstrual changes after the shot, or the way vaccines are being mandated at the same time they are under investigation for unknown risks. What I will say categorically is that you will have to answer one day, in this life or the next, for where you stood on the issue of mandating medicine for the healthy without informed consent, on giving cover for governments to shove things down kids' noses, and locking down all that makes life worthwhile. Where were you when kids' freedoms were stolen from them? I doubt there will be much forgiveness from that generation. Every time somebody posts a meme mocking vaccine hesitance, not only do they alienate the hesitant, and radicalize them, they implicitly endorse a new police state in which a liberal government like Australia feels empowered to pepper spray kids in the face for not wearing a mask that has not been conclusively shown to prevent viral transmission. The vaccines will not end these measures, especially in countries with low vaccination rates. They cannot, unless these governments admit their massive errors. Their booster shot push makes this unlikely. Finally, why does the media not even report on governmental data? Why am I reporting this stuff? I have no idea, but it is truly sinister. Ask yourself why the media will not even mention the fact that this 23-year-old Irish footballer, in perfect health, received a vaccine three days before dropping dead. I'm utterly sick of it, UK workers on the return of the commute. As September approaches, employers are increasingly asking workers to come in, with many offices adopting hybrid systems after months of working from home, prompting mixed emotions. Commuting can be both expensive and polluting. UK workers pay more of their salary and commuting costs than their EU counterparts and, before the pandemic, two-thirds of people travelled to work by car. But despite the costs, which also include time, some value the commute for separating their home and work lives. Seven people speak about how their commutes and their perspectives on traveling to work have changed since the onset of the pandemic Phil Harris, who travels into London from Horsham in West Sussex, says the cost of train tickets has increased since the start of the pandemic and that he is absolutely sick of commuting. The rail replacement weekends are harder to stomach when there has been so much time to fix things, says the 54-year-old. Which means walking farther to Horsham Station. My dilemma is that I don't want to change jobs because I love what I do, but I can't keep doing this commute, says Harris, who works in tourism. Due to the low numbers of tourists, Harris now starts work at 10 a.m. and gets the 8.50 train from Horsham, arriving at London Victoria at 9.43. His weekly ticket costs £110, which is more expensive than before the pandemic when his employer would give him a season ticket loan of £100 a week for 40 weeks. You would think working later would be cheaper, but with Southern Rail those fares start on trains arriving into London after 10 a.m. I'm utterly sick of it all, he says. Before the pandemic Tim Pitt's job as a document controller on construction projects sometimes meant commuting for more than an hour each morning to sites across London. I spent my entire working life taking tubes, trains and buses, says the 56-year-old. It's quite stressful, getting to work and fighting for a seat. 
After that job ended with lockdown, he started working closer to home, doing cleaning shifts at his local Weatherspoons and later working at vaccination centres in Waltham Forest, northeast London. It made me see how the commute starts the working day with stress, he says, adding that walking to work means he can relax and arrive fresh and ready for the day. Pitt, who is now looking for full-time work, says he would prioritize a job that does not involve taking the tube, particularly while COVID cases remain high. I really don't want to be on the tube in rush hour, even with my mask on, because a lot of people aren't wearing masks. I've been double-jabbed, but the tube is an incubator for the virus. Christina Cage, a 38-year-old chartered account in Edinburgh, did not appreciate how important her commute was until she stopped doing it. I came to realize that my commute was a time where I could transition from being a mum to becoming a colleague with a bit of space in between to myself, says Cage, who has two young children. Overnight it became a threshold of a door that didn't close. It's not because I like sitting in crowded spaces with strangers or in traffic, it's because it's the only time, especially if you're a busy parent, that you get to have that headspace to look out the window, read a book, listen to music or cycle. You've got a gift in that time when you have to move from one physical location to another, I didn't appreciate how necessary that was for my mental health. Cage says her office is discussing a hybrid working pattern, and though she thinks it would be quite stressful to return to commuting every day, she is looking forward to commuting on some days. In the lighter months of the year I sometimes cycle in, so that gives me the space and time to do some exercise I wouldn't have done otherwise, she adds. When Evie, a personal assistant in Essex, was job hunting last summer after her contract ended, she realized salaries had been slashed. It's been really brutal. A lot of employers are no longer paying London waiting as people are working from home, says the 50-year-old. She thinks salaries need to be brought back to pre-COVID levels to reflect commuting costs. Employers should say, we started your contract when everyone was working at home, we're going to want you back in the office, so we're going to increase your salary to reflect that, she says. Evie is on a significantly lower salary than she used to be, and is struggling financially now her employer wants her to start coming into the office in London twice a week. My son's just finished university and we've only got my income. I'd love to be able to go in two out of five days a week, but I can't. I can't afford to give my boss a third of my salary, and I'll be going into the office for no reason. I'll miss several hours of work by traveling in, just to say he sees my face, she says. Adding, there's never any mention of COVID. After changing jobs during the pandemic, the 36-year-old lawyer Anisha Coley's commute went from being a 20-minute walk to spending 45 minutes on the tube. I just couldn't bear it, the added expense, time taken and the stress of dealing with the commute during a pandemic, adding to the fact that half the stations were under maintenance, she says.
On a lark, I ended up cycling home on a Santander bike one day. Within a week I bought myself a ridiculously adorable pink bike with a wicker basket and now cycle to work every day. Coley, who has since completed a cycling course run by her local council, says an added incentive is that she is lucky enough to have a dream cycle route through Hyde Park and St. James's Park to her office in Kensington. Once I started cycling, just the thought of getting the tube was unbearable, even if it's raining or I'm super tired. However, the one thing she is worried about as a cyclist is air pollution. I live in the congestion zone, on a very busy street, and I feel the vehicle pollution intensely. Commuting for Chris Proctor, a 47-year-old loss adjuster in Kent, used to mean spending anywhere between 45 and 90 minutes on the motorway. Now it involves a short walk into the living room. At the end of the day, even after 17 months of working at home, I still sadly pop out of the front door before bursting back in to announce I am home, says Proctor. My teenage kids kindly remind me it wasn't funny on day one, but the dog still gets excited despite only seeing me seconds before. There are no viable public transport options in his area, and Proctor has seen a huge benefit to his well-being from not having to drive. I really value having more time in the morning. I sit and read before work and it chills me out. At lunchtime, I can go out and walk in the woods with the dog, we're semi-rural here. Even if it's raining, it's a really nice break. I have more time with the kids. It's lovely. In light of the climate crisis, Proctor also thinks his commute, which used to produce a massive, unnecessary carbon footprint, is ethically questionable. He said, I don't think I will fly again, and it seems stupid making those kind of decisions, but at the same time sitting in a car stuck on a motorway, day in, day out, polluting the planet, when there is a really good solution that we can use. Tanya used to regularly travel for more than six hours to meet partners in different UK cities for her job in international cultural relations. The 32-year-old, who used to live in Manchester but moved to Newcastle upon Tyne during lockdown, was constantly exhausted. As her office considers how employees can return, Tanya has applied to be a home worker. Not traveling was transformational from a health perspective, weight and skin and all of that sort of stuff, she says. It's the difference between getting up at 5.30 and getting home at 9 p.m., and getting up at 7 or 8, doing yoga, then maybe going for a lunchtime run. I think my average exercise was like, twice a year when I was traveling, and now it's about four times a week. Not to mention that I can make freshly cooked lunches and have a much better diet without consuming endless lattes and prep lunches. Welcome back, this is Misty101.com podcast. Visit www.misty101.com for great offers, read reviews and blogs, free shipping and great service, subscribe and get notification of new offers and discounts. Stay tuned.
One armed pound land worker karate kicks suspected shoplifter. A suspected shoplifter was dramatically thrown out of a pound land store with his backside exposed before being karate kicked by an employee. The incident, which took place in Sheffield, was caught on camera, with the footage, and the energetic commentary provided alongside it, promptly going viral. At the start of the clip, the alleged thief is seen being pulled to the floor of the store by a member of staff in one of the aisles, where he appears to be surrounded by Jaffa cakes. The person behind the camera is heard saying, it's kicking off. Another employee, who appears to have one arm, then grabs the suspected thief and forcefully drags him outside the store, causing his grey tracksuit bottoms to slip down and reveal his bottom. He also loses a trainer in the process. The man remains outside the shop and, after a brief exchange, appears to try and hit the shop worker. But the employee, who has, here to help, printed on the back of his uniform, clearly isn't ready to give up and swiftly karate kicks him. He then puts him in a headlock and yanks him to the ground. The person filming the incident then shouts, gone. Some called for the man to be given, employee of the year, with others saying he deserved a promotion. One wrote on social media, well done that shop assistant. While another said, that Poundland employee really wasn't having it and I respect it. Someone else joked, the most committed I've ever seen Poundland staff. A Poundland spokesperson said, we know our colleagues face difficulties every day dealing with shoplifters. We're pleased that this specific incident is now in the hands of the police. We're sure they're the right people to deal with this based on all the circumstances. A South Yorkshire police spokesperson said offices were called to the store at around 2 p.m. on Tuesday after reports of theft, disorder and threats being made towards staff. A 35-year-old man was arrested on suspicion of theft and assault and has since been released under investigation. Man explains why he refused to show woman his phone after she accused him of filming her. Numerous clips have gone viral on TikTok for calling out creeps, with their phones out by pools or in gyms, but rarely do we hear from the other side. However, a Reddit user has now spoken out in self-defense after he was accused of inappropriately filming a fellow shopper at a supermarket. In a lengthy post, the 21-year-old explained that he was standing behind a girl that looked in her early 20s, at the checkout when she started, turning around and huffing and puffing. Ignoring her, he said he got out his phone to check some text messages from his girlfriend. She turned around and saw the phone in my hand then made eye contact, he continued. She then freaked out claiming I was video recording her from behind. He went on, I was like what? My phone was pointed towards her back, yes, but I wasn't recording her. The 21-year-old said he tried to explain this to her before turning away, phone still in hand, in the hope that she would stop. She suddenly demanded to see my phone but I refused to show her, he said. 
That made her assume I had something to hide or was buying time to delete the video I took of her. She made a huge fuss, causing other customers to tell me to show her my phone and get this over with, he added. But I said, hell no, because I won't let a stranger look at my intimate texts with my girlfriend. The Redditor said the woman then told everyone that he was looking at her in a weird way, as if he was checking her out, and that she felt as though he was recording her from behind. He said she then got the manager involved who tried to convince him to show her his phone, since he had nothing to hide, but instead he admitted, I ended up lashing out at them both and leaving the cart full and walking out. The 21-year-old said he tried to explain this to her before turning away, phone still in hand, in the hope that she would stop. Ending his account, the 21-year-old said, I felt terrible since I frequent this supermarket and after what happened there I might not come back. He added that he'd spoken to his mother about the incident, who had told him he was in the wrong and should have just showed that girl my phone to ease her mind instead of acting stubborn and causing a scene. His story racked up more than 800 comments in 24 hours, with fellow Redditors divided over his approach. You have a right to keep your phone private, you don't have to show it to any random person who demands it, one wrote. She was in a public place, she should expect other people to be there with their phones, although it would be weird if you did video her. Another agreed, saying, what she's demanding is an invasive search of your phone. You have a right to privacy. And even if you were taking pictures or video, it's not illegal. She caused a scene and humiliated you. The manager didn't handle this properly at all. No one should coerce a search. A third added, she has no right to look at your phone, and honestly even if you were recording her it would just be her back in a public place. You did absolutely nothing wrong. However, a fourth contested this argument, pointing out, it's actually a big deal for women and it's considered creepy to record strangers, doesn't matter if it's from the back of not. And a fifth remarked, as a woman in her early twenties, I've actually been recorded by men since I was in middle school. It's a very common occurrence especially in big cities. The woman in the supermarket was probably paranoid or traumatized, but she shouldn't have made a big deal about it unless she was 100% sure. You could have just showed her what you were doing, like flash the text screen, without allowing her to read it. However, the commentator stressed that she didn't think the man had behaved like an a**hole, insisting that the manager should have handled the situation better and, the girl was definitely overreacting. It's never okay to act entitled to see people's phones, she added. What do you think? In Afghanistan, the worst is yet to come. Say what you will about President Joe Biden, he has stuck to his guns on ending America's 20-year involvement in Afghanistan's forever war. His decision not to delay our departure after August 31 was fortified by hard intel that the terrorist ISIS-K was preparing attacks at Kabul airport. Thursday evening, the two bomb attacks occurred. 
It now seems inevitable that the withdrawal will be completed by August 31, with all U.S. military forces following the last civilians out. Before this week's attacks, the airlift had been going far better than in its chaotic first days. Some 100,000 Americans and Afghans had gotten out of the country since August 14. Biden held his ground, refusing to be stampeded by Democratic critics, NATO allies, Republican hawks or media demanding he extend the deadline for departure until all Americans were out. His adamancy testifies to the convictions Biden came by during decades at the apex of the U.S. government during our longest war. Those convictions, even if the end result of a withdrawal is that Afghanistan falls to the Taliban, the cause is not worth a continuance of the U.S. commitment or the blood and treasure that four presidents have invested. Better to accept a U.S. defeat and humiliation than recommit to a war that is inevitably going to be lost. Biden's decision and the botched early days of the withdrawal have not been without political cost. Polls show the president's approval rating sliding underwater. A Suffolk poll has him down to 41%. Yet, on his basic decision to get out now and accept the costs and consequences, his country appears to be with him. After all, former President Donald Trump was prepared to depart earlier than August 31st, and a majority of Americans still support the decision to write off Afghanistan and get out. According to the Secretary of State, 6,000 Americans were still in Afghanistan when the Afghan army collapsed and Kabul fell. Some 4,500 of these have now been evacuated. The State Department is in touch with 500 other U.S. citizens to effect the departure. As for the remaining 1,000, we do not know where they are. Hundreds of Americans are going to be left behind, along with scores of thousands of Afghan allies who worked with our military or contributed to the cause of crushing the Taliban. And many of those Afghans are going to pay the price of having cast their lot with the Americans. After August 31st, the fate of those left behind will be determined by the Taliban, and we will be made witness to the fate the Taliban imposes. When the war for Algerian independence ended in 1962, and the French pulled their troops out, scores of thousands of Harkis, Arab and Muslim Algerians who fought alongside the French, were left behind. The atrocities against the Harkis ran into the tens of thousands. Such may be the fate of scores of thousands of Afghans who fought beside us. Biden's diplomats may be negotiating with the Taliban to prevent the war crime of using U.S. citizens left behind as hostages. But we are not going to be able to save all of our friends and allies who cast their lot with us and fought alongside us. Yet, while the promises of the Taliban are not credible and ought not to be believed, we are not without leverage. As the New York Times writes, the Afghan economy is in free fall. Cash is growing scarce, and food prices are rising. Fuel is becoming harder to find. Government services have stalled as civil servants avoid work, fearing retribution. 
The Taliban's desperate need is for people to run the economy and for money from the international community to pay for imports of food and vital necessities of life. What will also be needed from us, soon after the fall of Afghanistan, is a reappraisal of America's commitments across the Middle East. We have 900 U.S. troops in Syria who control the oil reserves of that country and serve as a shield for the Syrian Kurds. How long should we keep them there? We retain several thousand troops in Iraq. Why, indeed, there will be a temptation to counter our defeat and humiliation with defiant gestures or precipitate action to restore our lost credibility. Henry Kissinger's advice on any such action today seems wise, no dramatic strategic move is available in the immediate future to offset this self-inflicted setback, such as by making new formal commitments in other regions. American rashness would compound disappointment among allies, encourage adversaries, and sow confusion among observers. As for Afghanistan and the Kabul airport, there comes a time when even a great nation needs to accept the reality that Corregidor is lost. Joe Biden warned chances of Kamala Harris replacing him by end of year above 50%. Furthermore, UK-based New Yorker Mitch Feierstein, who also stood as a candidate for the Brexit Party in Reading East in the general election in 2019, rates the chances of the 78-year-old former Delaware senator completing his term at just 3%. Former Wall Street banker Mr. Feierstein was speaking at a time when Mr. Biden was coming under increasing pressure for his decision to withdraw U.S. troops from the war-torn country on August 31. There are deep concerns about Islamic militants the Taliban, which overthrew the government of President Ashraf Ghani earlier this month, with Mr. Ghani having fled the country. Mr. Feierstein said he put the chances of Mr. Biden stepping down by the end of the 2021 at more than 50%. He told Express.co.uk, I think there's a 3% chance he could finish four years, and a 97% chance he'll be gone before that. I wrote in October that if Biden wins, Biden will likely resign within a year, and Harris, the person no one elected president, and Obama wanted, will become anointed as president then she gets to appoint her own vice president. This isn't about Biden bashing, this is just an abject reality that people need to understand about what's going on and what has been going on. This is about a humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan and it's probably one of the biggest ones in our lifetime with what's on there and the consequences and international blowback. The Biden administration's mishandling of this crisis will linger on for decades. Mr. Feierstein said, I think the problem with what's going on there, is you have a terrorist organization and the Taliban, saying that they're inclusive and giving some double talk jargon. And the woke administrations around the world now are saying they will listen to it but you can't negotiate with a terrorist and you can't let a terrorist dictate policy to you. 
Asked whether Mr. Biden's predecessor Donald Trump also bore some responsibility, given his administration signed a deal with the Taliban last year, Mr. Feierstein dismissed the suggestion as a diversion. He added, My understanding from my contacts about that agreement and what was published for that agreement is one of the caveats that Trump put into that agreement was if the Taliban harmed one hair on the heads of a U.S. citizen or any of the collaborators or the partners that we had, our allies, he would go into the actual villages where these Taliban came from and decimate the villages. I think when you, deal with a terrorist, you have to have a different type of mentality, you can't appease them. You have to you have to go in with a hard line, and now we've got a situation where we don't know is there are 10,000 hostages, is there 20,000. People have been trying to get out of that country and the Taliban is not letting them through. What's the mechanism for getting them out? You don't just know it's something without a plan and this is what he's done. With specific reference to Mr. Biden's figure prospects, Mr. Feierstein said, before the end of his term, I think that that's probably an 85 to 90 percent probability but I'm not so sure that it will be his choice, there's only a few ways that he can go, he's got to resign, or he's got to be impeached, or they've got to use section 4 of the 25th amendment, which means they need a majority of the 15 cabinet members to vote that he's not composmentis mentors, which I think it's unlikely that they're going to get. But before the election, I did TV shows and I cautioned everybody, I said you're not electing Joe Biden, you're electing Kamala Harris, who was actually unelectable. He claimed, she was unelectable because across the country I think she had less than, I don't remember what it was but it was under 5% of the popular support of voters. So I mean she was unelectable and this was a way to insert her and anoint her as president. This is about a humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan and it's probably one of the biggest ones in our lifetime with what's on there and the consequences and international blowback. The Biden administration's mishandling of this crisis will linger on for decades. Mr. Feierstein said, I think the problem with what's going on there, is you have a terrorist organization and the Taliban, saying that they're inclusive and giving some double talk jargon. And the woke administrations around the world now are saying they will listen to it but you can't negotiate with a terrorist and you can't let a terrorist dictate policy to you. Asked whether Mr. Biden's predecessor Donald Trump also bore some responsibility, given his administration signed a deal with the Taliban last year, Mr. Feierstein dismissed the suggestion as a diversion. He added, my understanding from my contacts about that agreement and what was published for that agreement is one of the caveats that Trump put into that agreement was if the Taliban harmed one hair on the heads of a U.S. citizen or any of the collaborators or the partners that we had, our allies, he would go into the actual villages where these Taliban came from and decimate the villages. I think when you, when you, when you deal with a terrorist, you have to have a different type of mentality, you can't appease them. 
you have to you have to go in with a hard line, and now we've got a situation where we don't know is there a 10,000 hostages, is there 20,000. People have been trying to get out of that country and the Taliban is not letting them through. What's the mechanism for getting them out? You don't just know it's something without a plan and this is what he's done. With specific reference to Mr. Biden's figure prospects, Mr. Feierstein said, before the end of his term, I think that that's probably an 85 to 90 percent probability but I'm not so sure that it will be his choice, there's only a few ways that he can go, he's got to resign, or he's got to be impeached, or they've got to use Section 4 of the 25th Amendment, which means they need a majority of the 15 cabinet members to vote that he's not compose mentis mentors, which I think it's unlikely that they're going to get. But before the election, I cautioned everybody, I said you're not electing Joe Biden, you're electing Kamala Harris, who was actually unelectable. He claimed, she was unelectable because across the country I think she had less than, I don't remember what it was but it was under 5% of the popular support of voters. Joe Biden is like her uncle on new drugs that they haven't got the dosage right so I would not be surprised if he steps down. Welcome back, this is Misty101.com podcast. Visit www.misty101.com for great offers, read reviews and blogs, free shipping and great service, subscribe and get notification of new offers and discounts. Stay tuned. We hope that you have enjoyed the show. We thank you for being with us and your support. Goodbye till next time.